This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, that sounds a bit whistly. Um, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Caroline Beck, and I am a freelance writer and also a uh, radio producer in my spare time. Um, just a little bit of housekeeping before... <laughs> Smile, everybody, please. Uh, just a bit of housekeeping before um, I get on. Um, if you could turn your phones to silent, you probably have done already. And if you wish to tweet, if you've got the energy to tweet, would you wait until the house lights are up? right at the end of this event when we'll be taking questions from the audience. Now, I'm also hoping that everybody can hear me. Now, if you can't hear me, I want you to wave frantically, okay? And then I can project even more. Does that sound all right? Good, excellent. Okay, so this afternoon, it's my great pleasure to be talking with Yussi Adler Olsen. Have I pronounced that correctly? Oh, yes. <laughs> excellent. I have to say that. <laughs> Um, who is a best-selling Danish crime writer and also a one-time publisher who, amongst many other things, has studied medicine, film, politics, run a second-hand bookshop and played guitar in a number of bands. Um, all things which I suspect are indispensable for a novelist, especially one who delves into the entanglements of the human psyche as much as Yussi does. He's also the creator of six successful Department Q books, Featuring Detective Carl Murk. Have I pronounced? No, I have obviously made it. Terrible. A uh, terrible. Okay. Murk. 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 Okay, which I'm told means dark, which seems a very good name for a detective. Um, and his latest book, The Hanging Girl, has just been published by Penguin. Um, he's a New York Times bestseller and has sold an almost indecent 12.5 million books across the world. But today we are going to spool back to his first novel, which is called Alphabet House, a psychological thriller set in a German high-security mental institution during the Second World War. Now, although you wrote it in 97, it's only just been published here, and it is quite different from your other books. You're probably going to contradict me now, but anyway. So we're going to do a quick exploration of Alphabet House. How do you pronounce that in Danish? Alphabet House. It sounds much better. Um, I can't hear myself, and I have, now I can. I, I just have, have to say something before you are continuing. This is not my native language. I'm having a bad throat. I just bursted my eardrum. It hurts. So I can't hear anything from this side on. Do we have question, please come this over here? <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then not in Scottish, but in English. That might be tricky. Yeah. Now, so, Alphabet House. Um, at the beginning, right at the beginning of that book, you say in your foreword that this is not a war novel um, and that the war is just a framework for looking at personal relationships under a great deal of stress in extreme settings. Now, it draws really heavily, doesn't it, upon your father's work, who was a psychiatrist, practising in the mid-20th century, I think. Tell us about him and tell us about where you grew up, because it seems to me that's pivotal to a lot of your work. Oh dear. It's true, I grew up in a mental hospital. It's also true it was because my father was actually a doctor. 
But uh, living in a mental hospital from where you are about four years old and until you're 13, I hate this mic. What about this? Does it work? Does it work? Hello? Can you make it work? Hello? Wow. Now we're here. Goodbye, you. <laughs> so, I met any kind of people you can imagine that later on in my life until this 13 years old, I met maybe 15 killers and a lot of rapists and so forth, and I loved them all. So one of my best friends, he was Merck, actually the one uh, I am using for my main character. He's called Karl Merck, and Karl is because my name is Karl. Karl Valdemar Jussi Henry Arthur Olsen. What a pity, right? <laughs> so Karl, that's me, and Merck, that's the insane patient I met. He killed his wife. And my father said, well, when I asked him, uh, can I be with him? Yeah, you can be with him, because he, now he's getting some psychopharmaca. And in 55, when I was five years old, uh, mental patients was like crazy. You know, they screamed in cages. And uh, in the summertime, they were always stripped naked and stood uh, in front of the hospital in small cages. It's really true. So when I saw one flew over the cuckoo's nest, I, I laughed because it was much, much worse in reality. In 56, they had psychopharmaca. And psychopharmaca, it's a tablet you, you get, and then suddenly you can talk to the persons. They are like coming through their walls of insanity. And so was Merck. And, uh, Yes, he killed his wife, my father said, but it was, you know, he didn't meant to, and he became crazy after that, so it's okay. And he gave me a little kitten, so I loved him for that. <laughs> and brought food every day. I could see 200 miles away when he came, came with something I liked. Then it was, oh, no, no. Merck, he was good and evil. And this is, so is my main character, Karl Merck. The I'm amazed that you were given so much freedom by your father at such a young age to just go around the psychiatric hospital, which, as you've just described, sounds like a vision of hell. Do you know what we, what we did for fun, the other kids and I? We climbed to the roof where the autopsy took place <gasps> because then we could see the patients we knew from the outside, inside too very exciting. So I saw a lot of dead corpses uh, very, very early in my life. And I also the, sh the shock treatment, we saw it quite close. So yes, you can say it was strange, but anyway, my father, he was controversial and uh, we were, the kids were sort of a keyhole to the real world. Can you see that? So we helped the mental patients, in fact, to, 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 to see the, the real world, world a little clearer. And we were not afraid because we knew how to, I mean, go amongst them. You say that your father uh, was a controversial psychiatrist. What do you mean by that? Was he controversial amongst his own field or was he, or was it controversial at letting you children go and be amongst the mental patients? Mm, both. I mean, in his field, uh, he accepted that a lot of uh, the diseases actually had something to do with the social behaviours and so forth. There was one patient, his father and mother, he, they owned a small farm. And suddenly they died. Within 40 days, they were gone. And here, there he was, 
not being able to take care of the cattle. So the cattle died, and he was so frustrated that he burned down the, the, everything and became insane. Then he was being put into the institution of my father. And for three years, he was sitting like this here. And when we passed the kids, he said, absolutely nothing. But one day, when we passed, this was in 1960, I was 10 years old. Then he raised and said, hello, kids, and sat down. I was amazed. And I'm sad to say that I ran to my father's office and said, I don't think that this person is insane anymore, father. But then he was clever. He said, you, you have to realize, you see that, outside in the real world, it can be very tough to be a grown-up. And here, in the mental institution, television every night, every Tuesday there's a movie, the lady killers and stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, three meals a day. Can you imagine what will happen if I put him outside now? He will be back within one week, even more crazy than before. Let's wait to the day until he says, hello, Herr Doctor. Then we have something to discuss, but he will not do that, I'm sure. So he was sort of a simulant, but anyway, he was crazy too. And this story, The Alphabet House, mm. is mm. about simulants, because I met a few. There was one guy, he was cleverer than the guy who sat there. He could walk around, but he, when people asked him, he only answered with two different sentences, like, yes, something's there. And the other thing he said, well, God bless. If you are having some problems with your kids, try that. <laughs> That will put them down. But after 20 years, we met the patients again. And then he learned a third, uh, third sentence, up yours. <laughs> then we knew he wasn't that crazy. <laughs> Actually, you were talking about this, this word simulant, you know, and, and the whole thing about the alphabet house is that um, are people faking madness in order to survive? And at what personal cost does this come? And you say that when you were a child, you thought that some of your patients, and you've just mentioned one, were actually faking it. Um, but how do you know when somebody's faking it? And how do you not know when you're in this completely topsy-turvy world, as in, as in uh, the Alphabet House and Brian and James, who are in this sort of Alice, in looking, uh, Alice through the looking glass world where everything is upside down? Small stuff. You know it in the bedroom in the night when someone is faking. Well, you know, reacting wrongly, being too nosy about stuff, it's not normal for uh, a person, a, a, a psychiatric uh, person. Um, there are so many different diseases, of course, and you have to notice whether it's that or that. But uh, they, Always. I mean, they didn't, they didn't care for us, the children. We just ran around in the departments saying hi and played some pool with them. And uh, every Tuesday, this, this cinema, we, we were in that cinema together. And suddenly there's one laughing where he shouldn't laugh. Small stuff, then you know. But in this story here, 
the Elizabeth House is more problematic. You, you must think of two British pilots, yes, British, falling down behind the lines during the Second World War. And uh, then they are climbing a field hospital train to get away from not being killed. But this field train hospital, it goes deep down in Germany with only insane patients and only from the SS Corps. People coming back from the Eastern Front, totally insane from Granat, shock or whatever. And there they are being put in the Alphabet House, which is a field hospital down deep, deep down in Schwarzwald in Germany. The one pilot, he understands German, the other not. And they can't communicate in the, the hospital. So one knows something's going on and the other's not. So he's in danger all the time. This is a thriller. Do you know what the difference is between a thriller and a crime story? I think I'm learning it. You're learning it, okay. But it's very important to know that in a crime story, you have a crime in the beginning and you have to solve it. That's a crime story, very British. Uh, a thriller is more or less like preventing a crime to happen in the end. So now you're reading faster and faster to see whether it will happen or not. That's a thriller. And I'm writing thrillers. And a thriller story means that sometimes you're in the head of a person and not in the other head. And if you're in the head of the person who understands German, and now you know that he will be killed in 10 seconds, that is not nice to be the reader because you can't warn him. <laughs> That's a thriller. So two persons are lying there and the worst part about this is that there are other simulants and they are German SS officers and they are just about to kill one person. So we are lying in this hospital for a certain period and I will tell no more. The whole book is very claustrophobic. Is that, is that the way that you wanted it to feel? Because you actually, uh, there were some points where I could hardly bear to turn the pages because I felt I was there with them. She's a good reader, right? <laughs> that's, that's what it's all about, you know, to keep you awake in the night time. It did. That's it, that's it. Mm. Now, some of the methods practiced in the Alphabet House are bizarre and, and brutal, and I wondered whether they were more likely to engender mental illness than cure it. And do you think it's possible to withstand that sort of intense brutality and survive unscathed? Unscathed? What a fantastic word. Uh, not really. But alive, yes. 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 Uh, we human beings can survive, I mean, you can't imagine. And you know either, uh, all of you, you know that there are certain situations you couldn't survive, reading it in the newspapers and so forth, but anyway, you haven't tried. Maybe you could. I was writing, for instance, in another series I do, like the Q series, it's being published here in, in, in England and Scotland. It's all about, you know, uh, the first book about a woman in a cage. And I, read this, uh, I wrote this book before I knew of, of Natasha Kampusch in Austria or stuff like that. And people wouldn't believe me. Can't happen, you can't sit there for years and years without getting insane. But Natasha Kampusch, she came out, well, just a month after, after my book was published. That was good PR for me. <laughs> so thank you for that, Natasha. And she is still quite sane. 
Do you think it is possible? You think that people can undergo really intense uh, a, a sort of um, things on their mind by other people and, and still carry on living without it turning them insane? One never knows. Some can, some can't. Most can't. Mm. But uh, I met persons coming from the KZ concentration camps in, in Germany who put it totally away. And I met the opposite, that could never forget one single second. So uh, it's a matter of, uh, well, you could say like this. For instance, this, this person here in the cage, she's living in a pressure chamber. Every year, the pressure is being raised by one atmosphere. And we know that in the end, that's a thriller. They would take down the atmosphere pressure to one within seconds. And we know what will happen. She will explode, in fact. Uh, using a method like that, uh, I never heard about. But I heard about women, especially women, how they deal with pressure situation like this, like this. Like in Cambodia, for instance, uh, under the Khmer Rouge, uh, they drowned their own children in the flood if they were screaming because they were so afraid of getting killed from the Khmer Rouge coming. And uh, it was explained in so many ways why women are better survivors in concentration camps than men. Uh, like, it's so difficult to explain in English. Like they were living in a glass cage mm. because of their breathing system. That means that most women are only having one child at a time. And to protect their own body against that, they are sort of in a glass cage when real bad situations comes because of their breathing system. Men's are like a little different. Another thing is that uh, uh, women doesn't necessarily need to know why uh, they are being um, offended like this. Men must know it. Why do they put me in the cage? And what have I done? So the, most men kill themselves in situations like that. And there are many good methods, methods in killing yourself, I can tell you, uh, like biting over your arteries and stuff like that. F works fine, if you need to know. It's cheap, <laughs> if you have teeth still. Yeah. <laughs> now, you've, you've explained very eloquently about your father and the fact that this, this book, The Alphabet House, has been germinating within you for, for a great many years, I think. At which point did you think, I've really got to write this? Because at the beginning, in the introduction, I said that how many other things that you've done. You've been a publisher, you've studied, you know, you'd, um, you you'd played guitar in various bands. <clears throat> so at what point did you think, this is what I've got to do? I've got to yeah. write. I think it was throughout my medicine studies that I couldn't have an answer when I asked, where did this psychopharmaca actually come from? It was my belief that it was uh, being used in the case at the concentration camps. But it wasn't really because it was so expensive. So uh, I found out, asking a lot around, that they used it in those field hospitals in Germany only for officers. Because it was very problematic that the officers came from the Eastern Front. I mean, talking about the SS officers. 
the top of the tops in Nazi Germany, coming back crazy. That was shameful. So therefore they killed them actually. They gave them some poison and then killed them when they came back. But suddenly the luck of the war turned around. They needed the officers. So they tried out to keep them alive so they could send them back to the Eastern Front to be killed in a proper way. That was the explanation, simply. And later on, uh, doctors from, from Germany, they, they went to America, and then they developed the medicaments. But uh, it was throughout my medicine time, I think. And I asked my father a few times, how can it be that in 55 they were totally crazy, and in 56 you could talk to them, and he couldn't answer where it came from. So the success of the Alphabet House in Denmark encouraged you to take up writing as a, as a full-time career, and then you veered more towards um, crime with a psychological bent, and out of this emerged the Department Q series. And you've talked to us about Detective Merck. Um, I hope I've got that right this time. Um, now, there seems to me that there was such a lot going on in Scandinavian fiction uh, that were producing so much compelling writing um, were you writers all aware of each other and what you were doing? <sighs> you know, all of us in Scandinavia, Stieg Larsson, Håkon Nesser, Arne Lahn, whoever you're talking about, your Nesbjerg, we are having the, si the same idols, all of us. And it's Sjøvald and Valu. Yes, you know about them, I can see that. Sjøvald and Valu. They were a couple of writers in the 70s and made 10 splendid novels. And what was new was that they took in all the topics, the social topics, psychological topics, a little bit of humor. The Swedes are not very humorous, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. I'm Danish, you have to realize that. A little humor, but then first of all, very, very good dialects, authentic dialects. So we took it in all of us. So we are coming from the same couple of Suvan and Valu. Uh, I could tell a lot about why we are so extremely good. <laughs> and I could lie a lot about it because I don't know why. <laughs> but uh, normally I say, well, you know, me and, and Henning Munkel and guys like that, we sat in the wintertime, had nothing to do but telling each other <laughs> stories. Inventing up problematics and plots, no, no refrigerator, no television, nothing but storytelling. We are coming from the saga world, you know? You know, Iceland, it was Danish, actually. So it is. <laughs> like Greenland and England and so, small countries like that. So, um, but the main reason why it's so popular is it's quite exotic. Mm. Uh, I don't know why the other guys are popular, but I know why I am. I am. It's because, it's because I'm funny and humorous. Not in the Alphabet House, it's not mm. very funny, I have to say, but in the Q series. And of course, that I respect my readers very much. So, I was a publisher for many years. In a, the biggest publishing house, I was a manager in Scandinavia called the Bonniers. And there I learned very, very early that the readers are quite clever. Most publishers doesn't think about that, but I, I noticed. And I noticed, noticed also that they have been reading a lot more than I have. So to respect them, I 
and a few of my Scandinavian colleagues uses the small tricks, you know. The small tricks like, especially in the Q series, like not giving too much away. To give away a little few details so you can make the world yourself with your splendid fantasy. And if you ask me how come you are so violent and harsh, I have to say I'm not, but you are. My God, bloody minds, all of you. <laughs> and um, it makes, you know, a little co-production between the reader and I. That I know when you lie in your bed in the night time, I like to be with you, there with you. And suddenly I can see your head falling a little down. But then I give you a little, little sentence with humor and then you have to read 20 <laughs> minutes more. And then again at the other side, and then a little, you know, frilling stuff. Small sentences that keeps you awake. One hour there, half an hour there, and suddenly the whole night is gone. But you made most of the work yourself, you know. And this is a secret. You shouldn't give it away to any British <laughs> authors because they don't know what and how anyway. We also learned a lot, of course, from, from this country here, of how to make plots like cozy. Cozy plots. I mean, you are our masters here in, in England and Scotland making cozy plots. Cozy little murders. Fine little fantastic killings. And then we are taking, blending it in into our Scandinavian specialities. So, living up there, I mean, I'm, I'm being sold all, all over the world, and I can't imagine how a person from South Korea will read about the Q department in Copenhagen. But I know one thing, and they think it's very exotic. And it was the same with the British authors f for us, with all the castles, you know, and stuff like that, uh, when I was a kid. The exotic things about uh, Scandinavia is that we actually shouldn't live there. We should just die. We can harvest only once a year. And the rest of the year, we, I mean, what to do but thinking. And from that point of view, we made quite special societies. I mean, I, I was just being knighted at the Queen in Denmark. And, and it was a big honor, but you know, it was quite cozy. She and I together <laughs> in a small room. I couldn't feel the same about Elizabeth here. So we are, we are quite frank, we are quite, you know, uh, open-hearted. And uh, you're lucky here in, in, in England because you say you to everyone. But there's a distinction in any, any other country in, in Europe. You is du, and then you're acquainted. Or Z, D, and then there's some respect between us. But in Denmark, we threw away the C and only uses the U now, like you do here in Britain. And that means we can say, hello, Prime Minister, how are you? And we really mean you. In South Korea or in Russia or wherever, it's quite special that you can be so open-hearted and frank and direct. And my police officer, Karl Merck, is one of the most direct persons I know. I've got to ask you, did the Queen of Denmark uh, identify 
a favourite novel of yours? <laughs> no, she was so polite that she didn't mention any. And I hate her for that. <laughs> you didn't give her one of your books? I know the, 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 you know, the, I know the prince, he loves them. Okay. So I, I guess she peeped a little. Now you talked about the exoticism, as you saw it, of, uh, of British crime fiction. You, you talked about these sort of cosy little murders taking place in, um, yeah. in sort of uh, British villages and things. Um, and in the castles. And, I mean, and in the castles. Mention well. one Agatha Christie I haven't read. You can't. <laughs> but do you think that the exoticism of Nordic noir accounts for why it's so popular in this country? It just came out of nowhere. And I, I called into Waterstones on the way. You know, here, Caroline, dear Caroline, now I answer. We are just good writers. Uh -huh. That's it. That's it, simply. I mean, we were taught since we were like seven years old that if you're doing a freestyle in Danish, then you have to do your best. And if you're not doing your best, well, this is a teacher, but if you're doing the best, you will have a hug and a kiss. And I mean, I had so many claps on my shoulder throughout my childhood from my teachers. And this is normal. If, if you are doing something special, you're being rewarded. And someone likes to be rewarded and someone doesn't care. And I liked it very much, so I did my best. And most of my colleagues uh, were in the same situations. We had good teachers, simply, and tried to do our best. And that means to do the best is to edit your texts again and again and again. I can tell you I have a special method. Tell us. Yes, because being a publisher, I know all the kind of texts, uh, programs in the world, and I, I master them. But where and with what software do I actually work? I work still with WordPerfect 5.1. <laughs> can you remember? No. <laughs> you can? You must be really old. 5.1 is on the blue screen. It's Korea text in white. And it looks terrible. And it's good because then you know it is terrible. From time to time, I'm, I'm writing in a castle in, in Jutland, in Denmark, in a refugium together with seven or eight other authors. And in the night time, we meet at the chimney. And then we read aloud what we made this very day. And you know what? They think it's good. Because they made it in word with a, a pagina and margins and headlines and everything and comes down with the paper and think it's a book and it's rubbish. <laughs> but I know that mine is bad too. And so therefore I can take the criticism totally in and then I go up and rewrite and I rewrite and rewrite. Sitting with the word perfect 5.1 means that you don't have to use the cursor and the mouse so you can be concentrated if you know how to use it. So I can sit for maybe six, seven hours and just write. Or even more, or even less, if I don't want to do it. And I learned a trick from my father. My father he was the best educated man in Denmark. He, had, he was a professor in six different lines. Never happened for anyone before and after, I'm sure. But that means also that he studied all the life. He was a doctor and a minister and so forth. And I asked him, what is the secret? You sitting there forever and ever. 
how can you do it? Because I would like to be an author and I know this could be helpful for me. Then he said, now you can learn. First of all, you have, have to take away everything that has nothing to do with your writing. No coffee on the table, no telephone, no nothing of that. And now, the best thing to know of all is, but first, you have to pee. <laughs> if you have a big bladder, then you can sit forever and ever. And that's good for writing. There you go. <laughs> so that's the secret of your success, yeah. is it? A very large bladder. <laughs> I was going to ask something a bit more prosaic, which is where do your ideas come from? I've got this lovely image of you in this castle in, in Jutland, did you say? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sitting okay. there very often. Oh. I mean, I'm sitting only with my gadget tools, right? The old computer <laughs> and the old everything. Okay, so uh, where do those ideas come from? Are you just sort of sitting there waiting for them to come? Up? Are you reading newspapers? Are you trawling through the depths of kind of human misery to think out which are going to make the good sagas? I think all my books are about misuse of power. I hate misuse of power. It can be within the family. It can be, you know, in a company or the big misuse of power like Hitler and so forth. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find where could I point out a certain thing that is really a misuse of power, but no one ever thinks of it. And I'm not reading my colleagues, never, because I'm so afraid of being inflated. So finding a special plot topic, I must feel like it's original, really original. Like women being put into an island in Denmark. For 50 years they were there being promiscuous, I would say. Maybe some of them had some diseases, I don't know. But they were told they were so dumb that they had to go to this island and stay there until they were sterilized. And then they could be brought away again because no one in Denmark wanted them to breed, to have children. It happened from 1921 to 1961. This is a good topic to write about, isn't it? To take up the skeletons of the Danish society, this wonderful society of Denmark. Everywhere in the world there are stuff like that to take up. But of course I'm inflated by the newspapers and the stuff I'm reading there, but not really what's in the lines, more or less what's in between the lines. Because a journalist can write from here and until there, and this is fact. And then I can take over. This is my story. So, and I'm influenced very much by bad movies. Mm. I love bad movies. Sitting there, seeing a bad movie, trying to find out what's going to happen in the end, and it's not happening. But in the meantime, I'm doing through two or three endings myself, better endings, I have to say. And having a good ending to a movie who was what, which was bad means that you have a new story. So when I have a new story, I make a synopsis of 21 pages. And then I put it aside. And one day, maybe I write it and maybe not. I have a lot of synopsis if you need one. <laughs> yeah. Actually, some of the nicest, shrewdest people I've ever met have been crime writers. And I often wonder whether writing about violence, deceit, murder and mayhem um, actually gets it all out of your system. Yes. 
And I wonder how do you get it out of your system? I'm sorry. But also, equally, does it colour your judgment of human nature? Do you look around? Are we, are we looking around here thinking, I see who's the, the murderer? Yes, 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 I do. <laughs> uh, you know, I, normally I'm never, I'm never being uh, tempted to use real persons in my books. I did it in the alphabet house, I have to say. Uh, his name is Kroner. He's pockmarked. I had a friend in the, second, in the third hospital we lived in. Uh, way up north in Jutland, far away from everything. I had a new friend. He was a captain of a ship, and he was called Lüneborg, and translated to uh, English is like flash castle. Fantastic name, right? Flash castle. He was two meters high, and I was just a kid of 10, 10 kilos or something like that. <laughs> and he was my bodyguard. So we walked around, you know, all day long. So if you read about Koiner, this was a friend of mine called Lüneborg. Uh, can you remember your question? Yes, I can. I what was just was I was wondering whether all this kind of descent into madness and mayhem colours your judgment of human nature. I mean, actually, you seem to have a fairly sunny disposition. Yeah. Because you were talking uh, you, at the beginning of this interview about these 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 people who the rapists and the murderers, yeah. and actually, you were saying yeah. that they were pretty decent people. Well, apart from the fact they'd raped and murdered. Yes. Ah, uh, it's so problematic. Uh, I mean, I, I had I had performances f for the worst of the worst killers and stuff like that in Denmark one year ago. It was in an institution where they don't let them out ever. And uh, here I was, and they were like twenty-five persons. And then there was two officers down there, and my assistant, she, she ran away. They were tough people because I knew all of the faces like, oh my God, I mean, this is the worst of the worst. And then they came to me one by one later on uh, to, to have some signatures. And looking into the eyes, deep, deep in the eyes where the worst deeds ever was made up, and trying to keep yourself, I mean, ready only to see the surface, meant that they were kind and grateful that I came there to meet them. The first uh, event they had for four years, a real person come from the outer side and talking to them, knowing that this will not happen for the next few, few years. It was a good experience for me. And I tried, I tried really hard, you know, to get rid of the fact that they were like mm. bastards, all of them. And then, in the end, one of the persons came to me and gave me a small glass statue he made himself and said, you know, I think you made my life better for the next period. So this is a tribute to you. And I have a lot of prizes, a lot of prizes, good, fantastic prizes, but this has a special shell in my life. So I know I didn't answer your question, but this, you know, you know, you just have to realize that, like my father said, it's, it's, a, t it's a tough thing to, to get a grown up person. And uh, some, some can cope with that and some can't. And I pity them. But empathy, I guess empathy, that's what I learned in, in school today. 
uh, no, in <laughs> hospitals when I was young. Uh, and that's, I think, it's the most uh, important thing to, to teach your kids to be empathic. Uh, it's, it's tough to be empathic because when you walk around here in Edinburgh, for instance, and see all the guys who are sitting with their hands up, uh, you can't just pass them, not just pass them. So very, very often I stand and, and, and talk to them. It's, it's not always I give them something, but I very, very often talk to them. And my son, he has got the same problem, poor guy, because we have a flat in Barcelona, and I can tell you there are 10 times that many. So <laughs> can you go to the grocery shop, please, I tell him. He's 25 years old now. Yes, but you know it would take me one hour, and it's only 100 meters away. So, <laughs> Do you think that there's something deep within human nature which means that we, we need our monsters and that we need our demons and actually that kind of really gets to the heart of the kind of storytelling that, that, that you do. You, you mentioned a couple of times this, this sort of Scandinavian tradition of the saga and often at the, at the heart of the saga there is this dark, dark monster. <clears throat> when I read the sagas first time I laughed all the time. You know, there's a specific incident there. There are 10 Vikings coming from Iceland, and they're going to be beheaded. So the man, he raises, you know, the sword and cut off the head. And they're holding the heads like this with the hair, stretching it. Now we come to the main character. And you know what? There are five behind him. He's going to be beheaded. And in the moment when he's cutting, he's doing like this. And then they cut off the hands of the one who's helping the beheader. Oh, they laughed, the five, the last five ones. How funny it was. Well, they didn't succeed later on to do the same, but I mean, it's like that in Scandinavia. We don't mind a little killing here and there. <laughs> Actually, we came here to uh, Danelagen here in Britain, and we just killed people to get warm, you know. This is a joke, a Danish joke. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, Nordic noir has been criticised, increasingly, I think, criticised for its um, cult almost of ultraviolence. And but mine hasn't. But it has got a lot of female victims. Come on, it has. <sighs> female victims, uh, male victims, who cares? I mean, uh, a lot of victims, yes, but being killed decently. Is Not splatterish. <laughs> but at what point when you're writing do you think, okay, do, I mean, because there must be quite a lot of competition to see how far you can go, but at what point does that kind of tip over? I don't know about the competition. Snuff literature. Yeah, but I don't read the others. I don't you, know. you don't read at all? Never, the others. never, okay. never, never. I will when I'm retired, many, many years from now. But have you got places that you will not go in Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And what would they be? Children. Do I need to say any more? I mean, don't bring children into your uh, black stories. Mm. I don't like that. So you would stop that? That would be your... You wouldn't go I, beyond I would never that. do that. No, no. no. I don't, they are, it's, it's, you know, they are so vulnerable. No, mm. no, I will never do that. I'm, I, normally, I'm, my victims are quite strong persons, normally. They really deserve it. <laughs> so... But is there a pressure, well, I'm going to ask you, is there a pressure upon you from 
um, you know, sort of outside or the community of readers or maybe your publishers to go a little bit further and stray into territory that you don't want to stray I into. I don't listen to anyone but myself and my wife. <laughs> That's it. I, I don't know what they want. I do whatever I like. And still thinking I'm original. Now, you are writing, I think I'm right in saying, the seventh of the Department Q series. Is that right? Okay. Yes, it's true. Okay, now I have to mention I made three standalones, not only the Alphabet House. And the second one is coming uh, within a few months, too. Okay. But it's, it's political stories, it's international political stories with a lot of psychological themes in it. Now, you've had the same character running through the Department Q series, um, and I, I wonder whether you ever wish that you could consign him to the same fate as some of your victims. Do you ever get fed up with him and think, I'd just rather get rid of him and write a new character? Yes. <laughs> no, 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 no. You know, Karl Merck, he's a part of me, yeah. and I, I, can, I can do with him whatever I like. One of the other, uh, the sidekick is called Assad. Assad is a very, you've read about Assad? He's a very special person. Assad is uh, coming from Middle East and uh, he's not really a police officer, but he's catalyzing Karl Merck to do his job. Uh, but Karl Merck doesn't care because he's a lazy guy. So, uh, many of my characters, I needed just one sentence to understand who they really are. And it's just to mention an example why I care about my persons. Assad, well, he's strange, and you can never tell what's going on with him. I phoned my American translator one day, he's actually living in Denmark on an island, and I said to him, hey Steve, you know, I miss you very much. I'm thinking so much of you. And he said, wow, man, that's a coincidence. I'm also thinking of me. <laughs> that was unexpected. <laughs> so I saw this sentence like, this is a sad, clever, unexpected. Then you just have to put a moustache on the sentence and there's a sad. So I'm very often thinking about that because now this sen sentence is challenging, cha challenging me. When I'm sort of stuck within a person's character, I, I'm thinking about those sentences I have for every character, and then I know you have to do better, you see. And then I have a, another trick to like my characters and to like my writing. It is to listen to music while I'm writing. So the first thing I'm doing is putting on my earphones, listening to good music like film scores, or The Mission by Morricone, or Rachel Portman with all the lovely film scores of Emma and whatever, the sidearms rules. Classical music, can it be some jazz, Keith Jarrett. But listening, and even Riverdance by Bill Wieland, it's good. And listening to this exquisite music, so well done, makes me feel when I'm starting up on a lower level, so to speak. But I can work myself up to the same level feeling that now I'm doing really good and it's good for the characters. Mm. That's my answer. Now, I've, I've just got one more question before I throw open the questions to the audience. You wrote Alphabet House in 1997, I think, and it's only just been published here. 
uh, last you year. You are so slow here, <laughs> so extremely we slow. We are. We're very slow to catch up. Um, but did you reread it? And if you did, what did you think of it? Because '97 is quite some time ago. Well, I've been reading it uh, a few t few years ago. Okay. It's still a fantastic plot, I must say. <laughs> still, it is. It is. Uh, well, maybe I should have shortened it a little here and there. And but anyway, um, I felt when I when I made the story, this can be a fantastic movie by David Lean. But he's dead. It can be a fantastic movie by Richard, Richard Attenborough. But he's dead. But it can be a fantastic movie. It can be like casted within one role, Daniel Day-Lewis and Ralph Fiennes in the other. <laughs> but now they are old. So this is the only this is the only book where I actually made it directly for movies. And it took some years, but after one year, I sold the rights for movies. And I had the options every year. And you know, it's even better than the movies had, had been done. Take in the options every year, that's good for you. <laughs> now, unfortunately, I have to say that they are doing the movie. It's coming up within two years now. And I forgot your question. <laughs> Basically, what did you think of the book after, well, almost yeah, 20 years? I still, I still think it's, 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 it's lovely because in that period, it was long gone after the Gonzo Navarone mm -hmm. launch of Arabia, you know, Eagle's Nest and s stuff like that. And we needed a fantastic new story. <coughs> and I think it's one of the greatest stories ever told. Well, on that note, <laughs> on that modest note, <laughs> yes, I still I, like it very much. I would like to open up um, <laughs> uh, the questions to the audience, to you, the audience. Now, I think we have got a roving mic. Have we got a roving mic? Yes. Yes. It's this one. It's this. Okay. <laughs> so maybe someone could come and grab it. If you would like to ask Hello. Yussi a question, either about the Alphabet House or about his uh, his Does life growing. Well, let's hope so. Otherwise hello, hello, no, it works. Um, you right. can ask me anything. There's somebody over there. If you could just wait for the microphone to arrive and then, um, and then ask your question. Uh, yes, it sounds like, I mean, all of the time, as you said, with your 21-page synopses, that you have uh, a lot of tremendous ideas. But how do you turn a tremendous idea for a novel into a tremendous novel? Well, first of all, I have the synopsis. It's there on the screen. So I can write my way through it from page one until the end. Simple, right? But sometimes there are problems. How can I solve this and this? And that's what I'm aiming for. A lot of things I don't know. Many of my colleagues are telling me, well, you know the whole story before you're writing it. Is that, that couldn't be funny. But it takes me three months to make a real good synopsis. And within those three months, I'm doing the same as they are while they're writing it, inventing. The problems are fantastic. In my second novel, I had a problem I simply couldn't solve. I'm telling you now, and now you can solve it for me. We are having a main character in Amsterdam in a phone booth, like you know it here. Good old English phone booth. But it's for children's on a playground. 
and you can open it, but you can also lock it, and it, now it's locked. And she's there, and you can't see through the windows because, you know, it's matted. Is it? Yeah, opaque. Yeah, 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 mm. okay. So she's strapped around her neck and falling forward, and the hands, and the, everything. She can't move simply, except for she's falling forward, and very, very slowly, she's being strangled. She's been there now for 20 hours. She has no power left. Around her is, uh, are the children playing, building sand castles and something like that. She can't scream, she can't do anything. There's no phone, she can't phone, she has no lighter, she can't burn anything. She can't simply get away or no one knows she's there. That is a problem, Yushi. How do I solve it? Please tell me how I solved it. Answers on the back of a postcard, please. Do you know how to solve such a terrible situation? She didn't. But in the end, what must happen? Any suggestions? She dies. That's clever. <laughs> but she's my main character. She doesn't can't <laughs> die. Be a very be a novella. <laughs> but you're so right. You're so right. Yeah. So right. Yeah. No. In the end, she just pees. Under her, the pee is flowing. Outside, suddenly the sand is wet. Outside, from wet sand you build fantastic castles. Not from dry. And suddenly there's a little small guy sitting there building a fantastic castle of wet sand. And then the teachers are coming nearer and telling, asking, what are you doing here, Clive? Oh, what a castle. What? And then it's soft. Then they know something is in there. Easy, right? So synopsis with problems makes themselves into a story. Any other questions before we wrap up? Anybody? Yes? Gentleman here. <coughs> Just uh, wait for the mic to get to you. You mentioned that um, one of your books is going to be filmed. What about the first Avenue Q adaptation? Were you happy with that? And if I may say, I did not see the film because I did not want to see Nikolai D. Cast. I probably butchered his name now, playing Merck. And I, I always, if I had to pick one Danish actor, I don't know that many. I would pick Kim Bodnia to play the part. Were you happy with the final result? May I say I love you dearly? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you may. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you and you, the producer, since I, I, I started movies in university too, and uh, I knew him very well. I didn't know that I had to put in the contract that I should supervise everything. I didn't. So I lost my control, totally. And the movies are like four stars movie, but six stars are possible. Is that good enough? No. So uh, I can say it here in, in Scotland that I don't like the movies. If I said it in Denmark, they, they would sue me. I don't like the movies, and it's not because the, uh, that this is my child. It's simply not good enough. But it's being seen by lots of persons. The two movies of the two first are the most seen movies the last 25 years in Denmark. So it must be good, mustn't it? And they're having contracts on four movies, and after that, 
we have to reboot the whole series, we do. But I can tell you, and I'm so happy to tell that, I have now made a contract with maybe the best screenwriter in the world, called Scott Frank, who made Minority Report, Schindler's List, you know, <laughs> Get Shorty and stuff like that. Uh, and he's now adapting it to season-based television series. That means one book, one year. <laughs> you know, I see, I, see, uh, I see a story like a rubber band. You can do like this. Tell a little more here, a little more there, and so forth. And if you cut it many times, like a movie, and try to glue it together again, it's not really elastic anymore. But if you only cut once, you can do like... And it's still one story. <coughs> and you can go deeper into the characters than I did within a season-based television series in America. So I said, yes, we, have, we made the contract, they're writing now. So you have to cope with that the next 10 years, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I think we're almost out of time. Um, so I would just like to thank you very much, Lucy, for coming along and talking to us today. And I'd like to thank you, the audience, uh, <coughs> for your lovely questions and for being so patient and bearing with us uh, after this slightly strange noise outside. I hope everybody could hear. And Lucy's going to be signing books in, over in the main bookshop. Um, but if you could just stay seated until we leave and then uh, you should be signing books over there. So thank you very much and thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.